0: Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, all. Thanks be to God.
1: Father, once again, for many of us it's been a long a long week, perhaps a long term. And so we come to you that you may encourage us. We come to you that you may refresh us. We come to you that we may hear your voice again. And we do pray that you may speak to us through the Bible and that you may draw us to yourself. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The key to our passage, and actually the key to the book of Philippians, is actually in chapter 3, verse 10. So could you turn to chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, so that we can get the key to help us understand that wonderful passage describing the person of Christ. Paul is writing to a church in modern-day Turkey. He's writing to Christians And they are Christians at a time in the life of the early church when there was a great deal of persecution of the Christians, and there was a great deal of suffering that they were undergoing because they were Christians. And so Paul writes this letter, and one of the reasons he writes them is to remind them that this actually is the walk of a Christian that when there is suffering when there is persecution when there is hardship that is how it is this is not as if god has deserted you or god has abandoned you no he is encouraging them that the life of the christian it is a life of joy and it is a life of gladness in our in our salvation and in our great hope but it's also a life of suffering and so he reminds them that what's happening to them is not unusual it's not as if they are abnormal And he reminds them of that, not only from his own experience, but he tells them what happened with Jesus, that Jesus also suffered. And so we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 10. Here Paul outlines the purpose of his writing. He says there that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is telling us here, actually, the purpose of his life. And the purpose of his life is to know Christ. Notice that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may become like him in his death. So Paul is giving us an example He's saying, here's an example, this is what it ought to be like for every Christian, every believer. Our aim, our goal, our purpose in life is to know Christ. That is ultimately the aim. And our aim is to know him and to be like him. And then he fleshes out a little bit what that means. So notice again, that we may know him and that we may know the power of his resurrection. Now, of course, if you are converted... If you have come to faith in Christ, if you have been born again, that has been the power of God. That has been the power of the resurrection. That's been the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is actually saying the same power that was needed to raise Jesus from the dead was the power that was needed to raise you and me from spiritual death. So he says, my purpose is to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. We know he's, we, we need his power. To be converted, we need his power to live the Christian life. We need the power to persevere. But more importantly, notice, we need the power of the resurrection to share in Christ's sufferings. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a shock. Because in the contemporary culture in which we live, the thinking is you need the power to avoid suffering. You need power for signs and wonders and miracles. And Paul says, no, you need the power of his resurrection so that you may be able to share in his sufferings, to walk in the steps of Jesus. Now, my dear friends, that's almost obscene in our general Christian culture. Our general Christian culture says you need power to avoid suffering. Paul says the opposite, sort of a shock. No, you need the power of his resurrection. Why? So that you may share in his suffering. He's saying that suffering is part of the Christian life. It's part of normal Christian living. And we'll see that when we look at the person of Christ, that he suffered for us. He humbled himself so that we could be rescued. Again, have a look at that verse. There's a sequence there. There's an order which gives us a pattern of the Christian life. He has a template. This is how it normally is. First suffering and then glory. First death, then, then resurrection. So Paul is saying that is the normal order of the Christian life. There's suffering now and glory later. Now we know that in all spheres of life. If you want to win the comrades as we had uh, two weeks ago, And we uh, had a South African winning. Uh, Well, there's a lot of suffering for years before there's glory. If you want to become a great musician, there's years and years of suffering for you and those listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that terrible when you have neighbors and the kid wants to learn the drums? I mean, that is your... Anyway. So first there's suffering, then there's glory. That's the pattern of the Christian life. That's the pattern of the life of Jesus. And So it's important, so it's critical that we understand that because if we don't understand that, we'll become disillusioned with God. If you've been sold a story that says come to God and no more problems, no more pain, no more suffering, no more hardship, my dear friends, you've been sold a lie. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, first suffering, then glory, first death, then resurrection. If you have a wrong view of the Christian life, of living the Christian life, you won't be able to sustain it. Because you'll have a wrong picture in your mind. You're thinking of a casino where you get instant cash. No, we're thinking of comrades, where there's training and there's blood, sweat, and tears, and then there's the winning line. Let me let me just apply this to a, to a it's quite a contemporary thing. Uh, let me let me try just just to apply that principle to the whole issue just of immigration. The last 12 months, we all know, we've had a wave of people leaving. There may be people here this morning who are thinking of leaving or planning to leave. Um, we've probably lost in the last six seven months 15 20 families who have emigrated. Now, let me make it very clear. You are absolutely free, absolutely free, to emigrate or to emigrate, to move or to relocate. You can even go to Cape Town. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say you have to live in one place. The Bible doesn't say you have to live where you are born. You can move, you can relocate. What the Bible says is wherever you live, you have to serve God. So that's the key thing. So, so in one sense, it doesn't really matter where you live. The key thing is that you are living for God, and you are serving God wherever God has placed you. So let me make that clear. Let me make it equally clear that I am not judging anyone. There are people who have moved because they can't find work here, so, that, so they have to find work somewhere else. There are people who have had a bad, very bad experience with crime. Now, you can understand that. You have people who, by choice or preference, want to move or relocate. You are free to do that. The Bible doesn't say you have to live in one place. You have a right, you have a full right to stay and move wherever you want to be. But you've got to serve God there. My point, however, is this. You need to understand that wherever you go, you will not avoid suffering. So, there'll be suffering in two ways. The one is that you cannot escape sin... You cannot escape the devil, and wherever you go, you will live under the curse. That is everywhere. So it doesn't matter where you live, and you can live anywhere. Don't think for one moment that you will avoid the brokenness of this world. And apart from sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, you take yourself. And that's normally pretty bad. So don't think that if you relocate, you will have no suffering. What you need to do is to choose your poison. That's really what it is. We live in a poisonous, toxic world, wherever you are. doesn't matter where you live. It's toxic. It's poisonous. It's different. The poison is different, but it's poison. So choose your poison. So you may say, "I want to leave the insecurities of South Africa, and that's fine if you want to do that." But wherever you go, there will be other insecurities. They won't be the same, but they will be different. So, for instance, if you uh, move to uh, perhaps to Europe, uh, uh, um, the trains will run on time, and the lights will be on twenty-four-seven. It'll be a bit hot at the moment. You probably won't have state capture, but you may have brain capture. You see, you may move to a country where they are teaching your children that it's fine to be a homosexual from five years old. Now, that's not state capture, but that's brain capture. So, I I mean, choose your poison. So let's not be naive. Living in this world is suffering. And you've got to choose your poison. You've got to to be realistic. Wherever I live, there will be sin, there will be the devil, there will be the curse, and I will still be there. The second way you and I will suffer is we will always suffer as Christians. And sometimes if you relocate, especially to first world Western countries, you will have more persecution than in Africa. You need to know that. It is not easy being a Christian in first world Western countries. There are exceptions, but as a general statement, that is true. You will find it much more difficult to be a Christian and to bring up your family in a Christian context. So that is perhaps where God wants you. That is perhaps where God wants to use you. But don't think it will be easy. Don't think you will avoid suffering. We will suffer for Christ wherever we are. All right, let's uh, let's go to chapter 2. We've seen Paul's purpose. He wants to know Christ. He wants to become like Christ. So the question now is who is this Christ that Paul wants to know? And what will it mean to be like Christ? Now there are certain things we share with Christ. There are certain things we don't share with Christ but let's have a look at the person of Christ because if you are a christian to a, to a great extent you will walk in his footsteps because that's how it is let me read from chapter 2 and verse verse 5 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of god So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Paul points us to three aspects of the person of Christ. So it's important for us to understand who Jesus is. And Paul gives us this wonderful description. It was probably used as a hymn in the early church. And in that hymn, like in many of our songs, we learn about the nature of God and the character of God and the love of God. Well, that's what we have here in this passage. Three things, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the lordship of Christ. So let's dig in, and we'll see in just a moment how that applies to us, especially when we look at the humanity of Christ. Firstly, then, the deity of Christ. Notice there verse 6. Paul makes it quite clear that when he talks about Jesus... He's talking about God. He says, verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's stating it in the negative, but he's affirming there that Jesus is of the same essence, the same substance, the same nature as God. He is in the form of God. He is, he is equal with God. So the Bible is very clear about that, and um, you find many verses, passages, which affirm the deity of Christ, that he wasn't just a man. Of course he was a man, and we'll get to that in, in just a moment, but he was God. So you remember in John chapter 1, verse 1, that John tells us, John echoes the words from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. So remember, in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God John, who knows Genesis, says in the beginning was the Word, meaning the Word is God. And then he tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, we told who the Word is. What is the identity of the Word? Well, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So he's talking about Jesus So John frequently affirms the deity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I mean, that's pretty clear. He says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. speaking to Philip, John 14. He says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He uses God's name for himself. You remember God's name is I Am. The everlasting, eternal God who has no beginning, no end. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The Pharisees ask him, what is your name? He says, I am. He's affirming his deity. There are many people who say Jesus never said that he was God. In fact, uh, Lee was telling me on Friday, one of his friends said to him, the Bible never says, or Jesus never claims to be God. Well, he's obviously never read the New Testament. Because there are dozens and dozens of places where Jesus affirms his deity. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He had the form of God. He had equality with God. Now, let me just say that there has always been, through the ages, people, we call them heretics, who have denied the deity of Christ. It's not a minor matter, because you actually can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the deity of Christ. You may be a nice person, you may be a religious person, but you cannot be a Christian person if you don't believe in the deity of Christ. That is the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. In uh, around about 300 AD, there was a prominent Christian leader called Arius, And Arius taught that Jesus was not God, that he was a creature, that he was a created being, that he was a great being, he was a great creation, but he wasn't God. In fact, he taught through music. So music is so important. Music teaches theology. And so Arius taught. One of his songs, the chorus, said, there was a time when Jesus was not. And uh, Arianism... um, took over most of Christendom, and there was one man who fought him. He was an African called Athanasius from Egypt, and Athanasius fought against Arius for years and years, for, for 20, 30 years. He fought against Arius. In fact, he was, he was exiled from the Roman Empire for 17 years. On five occasions, he was exiled. But he fought against Arius because he claimed, as the Bible does, as Jesus does, that Jesus is God, he's God in the flesh. And Athanasius rescued us, almost single-handedly, from us being Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. They will say he is a God, but they will not say that he's God in the flesh. He is, they will not say he is co-equal with God the Father. So they will not affirm the Trinity. So Athanasius, our great hero, our great African hero, rescued us from Arianism. Do you know that that his enemies, he came from Egypt? And um, that's why with with, uh, AFCON, Egypt is one of my teams that I'm supporting. Because Athanasius came from Egypt. His enemies called him the black dwarf. He was a short guy, and uh, he was an African. He, He was a black Egyptian. And he fought against Arianism, so that you have the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed came about to correct wrong teaching. And the Nicene Creed says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. And then notice, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one substance with the Father. So we, we repeat some of the creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Those creeds were not only to teach truth, they were to correct error. Now, I think in our day and age, we still have heretics denying the deity of Christ. But it's not quite so obvious. It's not that they actually deny it, it's that they minimize it, or they trivialize it. And when you minimize or trivialize the deity of Christ, you're actually denying the deity of Christ. Kenneth Copeland, one of the TV evangelists, said, Every man who has been born again is an incarnation The believer is as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, my dear friends, it is true that we are children of God. But we are not like Jesus. We are not God in the flesh. Another TV evangelist said, I am a little God. I have his name. I am one with him. I am in covenant relationship. I am a little God. Critics be gone. Well, I won't be gone. Another TV evangelist said, Many people do not know that the new birth birth is a real incarnation. They do not know that they are as much sons and daughters of God as Jesus. My dear friends, they are trivializing at best. They are minimizing the unique deity of Christ. We are children of God, but we are fallen sinners who need God's grace in order to become his children. Jesus was without sin, a human being, God in the flesh, who came to rescue us. I think we also have in recent years in some of the churches, you have prophets, apostles, who call themselves the man of God. And there's such an emphasis on the man of God that you almost never hear about the Son of God. Because it's the man of God who will give you blessings. It's the man of God who will give you a message from God. It's the man of God who has supernatural power. Now, my dear friend, the, the result of that is that you are trivializing the deity of Christ, the Son of God. Your focus is in the wrong place. So those people, no doubt, would affirm the deity of Christ, but de facto, through their teaching and their behavior, They are drawing attention to themselves as the special creature who has special powers, the man of God. And I think that's just as much and just as bad as Arius in denying the deity of Christ, because the focus is in the wrong place. So there we have, we have the deity of Christ. Let's now have a look at the humanity of Christ. So we're looking at the person of Christ. And how that affects us, not only in our salvation, but in our walk. So have a look at verse 7. Though he had the form of God, verse 6, though he was equal with God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the first thing we need to notice here is that Paul is affirming, as does the rest of the New Testament, is that Jesus had two natures. He was both divine and human at the same time. So it wasn't as if he was 50% human and 50% divine, no. He was 100% human and 100% divine in one person. Now, some of you who've done maths and can remember your maths know that you can't have more than 100%. Well, we're talking about God. God doesn't fit into our little neat categories or boxes. No, in that one person, that one Lord Jesus Christ, who physically walked on planet Earth, if you lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine, chances are you would have seen God in human flesh. And at the same time as being human, he was God. It's not as if his top half or his mind was God and his body was human. No, no, no. 100% God, 100% man. One person, two natures. We know about the humanity of Christ when we read, when we read the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, it's quite obvious that Jesus was human. He was tired, he was exhausted, he was hungry, he was thirsty. He became angry with sin. He felt God forsaken. Don't we sometimes feel that? Well, if anyone knows what it feels to be God forsaken, it's Jesus. In fact, you see his two natures in Mark chapter 4. You remember when he was was on the boat with his disciples on Lake Galilee, and and there was a big storm, and he was sleeping in the back of the boat. And with a storm, he was exhausted, absolutely exhausted, a storm. There's wind, there's waves, and Jesus is sleeping. And then he stands up and he says, peace be still. And the seas stop and the wind stops. There you see, just in that one little cameo, five, six verses, both the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. Notice verse six, the process that he went through in taking on human nature. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking on human form. Verse eighty, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So even though he was God, he emptied himself. John Calvin said, Christ didn't divest himself of his Godhead, but concealed it for a time so he restrains his divine nature characteristics he curbs them he limits them in order to rescue us because he loves us so so it's a little bit let's take a let's take a english academic let's take a lady who's a, who's got a phd in english literature and um, she's got all this knowledge she's 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 eminently educated, and such a wonderful command of the English language. How does she speak when she speaks to her two-year-old daughter? Well, she doesn't use PhD language, does she? No, she uses two-year-old language. That's what she does. She uses two-year-old language. She conceals her academic abilities because she loves her two-year-old. So that's the idea here. So it's not as if Jesus didn't stop being God. God. He was still God, but he concealed it because of his love for us. And then the one who possesses immortality subjects himself to death, to suffering, to mortality, to rescue us. So Jesus takes the path of suffering willingly. Luke's Gospel, you remember, he set his face towards Jerusalem, where he knew he would be killed, he knew he would be crucified. He knew that he would be God-forsaken. John Stott says, He who was rich became poor, so that those who are poor may become rich. The Son of God became a curse, so that those who are under God's curse may become sons of God. Isn't that extraordinary? That's the person of Christ. That's what he did for us. He was God in the flesh. He had all the advantages of being God, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign, eternal, infinite. He didn't have to live in this broken, sinful world with all its frustrations and all its heartache and all its tears, but he did. He willingly endured suffering and hardship and even death. And the worst part of his death wasn't physical, it was spiritual. God poured his judgment and his wrath upon Jesus in our place. And Paul says, if you follow Christ, remember you're going to walk the same road. Now, of course, not in the exact details. We know that. But suffering is part of the Christian life. That's what Jesus did. That's where he walked. That's where Paul walked. Paul was in prison. Paul had his head cut off for preaching about Jesus. That's where the apostles walked. That's where millions of Christians have walked before us. So Paul is saying, don't be surprised when it happens. Don't think God has abandoned you, God has left you, things are going wrong. Where's God? No. Suffering is part of the journey. Suffering is part of the calling. Lauren Maggs, I heard her say when she became a Christian, when she looks back, it was like kind of walking through a door, and as she walked through the door of salvation, she left behind her burdens and her sin and her guilt, and as she walked through the door, she looked back and there it says, take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great German Christian during the Second World War. He opposed Hitler. And he was killed for that. And in one of his books, he said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's what he did. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Paul is saying, I want to know Christ and I want to be like Christ. And Paul understands what that means that we suffer for him. And we do so joyfully. You see, the joy comes that, that you've got a great purpose in, purpose in your life, purpose bigger than you and your little world, your little aches and pains, my little aches and pains. I mean, what's so important about that? Not much. No, my purpose is far greater, is to live for Christ, to serve Christ, to work for Christ, to labor for Christ, to do blood, sweat, and tears for Christ, to suffer for Christ. There's a joy in living for Christ. There's a purpose, there's a meaning but there is suffering. But after the suffering comes glory. So have a look at the Lordship of Christ, thirdly, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Now Christ has gone to death, even death on a cross, verse 8. Therefore God has exalted him. So first there's suffering, then there's glory. First there's death, then there's resurrection. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice first of all first of all the great reversal here there's a great reversal. So first he was humbled now he's glorified. First there was death now he's resurrected. First he was a servant, now he's Lord. In some ways, that's the pattern of the Christian life. First suffering, then glory. It's a reversal. So in a sense, the way up is the way down. So it's a paradox. The world says the way up is the way up. The way up is to step on people and use people. Jesus says, no, the way up is to serve people. We are slaves, we are servants, but the more we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, the more we serve, the more he will glorify us. The way up is the way down. That's the paradox of the Christian journey. Second thing, notice here that on Judgment Day, everyone will will recognize the Lordship of Christ. Christ. Did you notice that? Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Now, there may be some here this morning or listening on the website who do not confess Jesus as Lord. Well, Paul says on the day of judgment, either by choice or by compulsion, you will recognize that Jesus is Lord. It's one or the other. Either by choice or by compulsion. So Paul says he wants to know Christ. He wants to be like Christ. Well, Paul knows that when he says that, it is no light thing. It is no small thing. It's not a thought for the day. It's not daily devotions. No, he says, don't be naive. There will be suffering for Christ. But then there will be glory. That's the normal Christian life. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, will you forgive us when we've forgotten what you did for us? Forgive us, Lord, when we forget what Jesus went through to rescue broken sinners like us. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget that this is the Christian journey. Forgive us when we've been taken in by false teaching. Forgive us when we have not been willing to walk in the steps of Jesus. And Father, would you encourage us with this great truth, that it's a great privilege to be a servant of Jesus, to be a slave of Jesus, to serve Jesus, to go through blood, sweat, and tears for Jesus, Help us to remember that. Help us to, to know the joy when we're serving him and not ourselves. So, Lord, go with us into this week. We pray for those who are going on the mission projects. We pray your special hand upon them. And that the same wonderful gospel may be shared with many, many people. And we pray this for Christ's sake.